Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time capsule is three years old today. Hooray! Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday. Yep, it's three years since we started this podcast, with a wonderful episode starring Stephen Fry, which you can still listen to now. And since then, we've done nearly 300 episodes. Not bad, eh? Anyway, in case you've not listened before, My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they'd like to put in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and one thing that they'd like to forget, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. My very special guest in this birthday edition of My Time Capsule is the actor David Morrissey, who is possibly best known for his roles in the TV series State of Play, for which he was nominated for a BAFTA, and the recent drama Sherwood, as well as the governor in the American horror drama series The Walking Dead, which I'm too frightened to watch. David began his acting career in the 1980s, performing in various British stage productions before making his TV debut in 1983 in the series One Summer, which he talks about in this episode. Soon after this, he went to drama school, RADA, and then his career began in earnest. In fact, his TV and film credits are so huge that I could really only mention a few or we'll never get to the episode. So, as a sample, he was in Radio Man, Britannia, The Singapore Grip, Inside Number 9, The League of Gentlemen, Good Omens, The City and the City, The Missing, The Driver, The 739, The Field of Blood, The Hollow Crown, Blitz, that one didn't start with the, the TV miniseries Thorn, 
tricked you there, you see, which was actually written by a past guest of ours, Mark Billingham. The film Nowhere Boy, about the young life of John Lennon, Red Riding, The Other Berlin Girl, Cape Wrath, Basic Instinct 2, The Deal, The Reaping, Clocking Off, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, Centurion, Hillary and Jackie, Our Mutual Friend, and, of course, Doctor Who. And I haven't even mentioned his stage work. David is a patron of the Liverpool Everyman and Playhouse Theatres and has worked with organisations such as the National Autistic Society and the British Red Cross. And this is a first for my time capsule. We've recorded at a festival before, but with a small crowd. This was recorded at the Ink Festival in Halesworth, Suffolk, in front of a very large but attentive audience. So I'm not the only one laughing for a change. And of course, for the first time, I couldn't just talk until we'd finished. I had to try and make sure the episode lasted just under an hour, because that was our slot. Right, let's find out how good I am at timekeeping, and how easily I'm distracted by a witty, erudite and fascinating guest. Here is the wonderful David Morrissey. I'm delighted to say that we're going to have a conversation between possibly the best actor in the country and David Morrissey. (laughs) (laughs) So could you please welcome the stage, Mr David Morrissey. Thank you. Hello. Sit down. Good man. Very funny. Oh, right, yes. <laughs> Got some gags. <laughs> so we've just had lunch together, and we spent an hour in the dressing room together, so we've basically covered every anecdote we could possibly... <laughs> yeah, we've told both of them, yeah. <laughs> but it's really pointless going through all the things that you've been in, because otherwise you won't get to talk. I'll just be right. listing things. I am that old. But I did see you um, as Mark Anthony. Oh, right, OK, yeah. Recently. Did anybody see that? Absolutely oh, brilliant. Right. Yes, come on, lend me your ears. <laughs> Thank you. So, David, we're going to talk about five things from yeah. any time in your life, of any nature, mm-hmm. that you'd like to put into a time capsule and have them preserved. Right. So, um, okay. have, you got, have you got any ideas? Yeah, I have. So, it was quite, it was interesting because obviously I've, I've never done Desert Island Discs, but I'd really struggle with that. I'd really struggle to find eight music choices because I love my music, and that thing of being able to sort of hone it down to eight choices, I think I would be really struggling with. But this I didn't find that difficult. I mean, I didn't find it difficult in the sense that, you know, I do have lots of things. My house is full of knickknacks and stuff. But once I thought about it, you know, I wanted to have some sort of journey and story in the, in the, in the objects themselves. Mm. But once it went off, I thought... Okay, yeah, I can, I can do that. I can live with that. Yeah. So yeah, some of them are objects that are personal to me. Others are things from work, uh, which remind me of times when uh, jobs that I did which were very special to me. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know whether you want it to be in any order or not. No, whatever order you want to put it in, really. So tell us what your first thing would be. So the first thing I have is... Um, when I was younger, I wanted to be an actor. That was it. I just did. It was the thing I always wanted to do. Uh, I was in a school with a lot of sporting lads and girls who were, like, always in the first team, and that, that wasn't me. I wasn't really... I love sport. I love football particularly. I boxed for a while, but I was never going to be any good at any of it. Mm. 
And then I moved schools quite a lot because my parents were moving around and stuff. And I ended up in this junior school. I had quite a good drama department. You know, they had a quite hippie teachers and they were doing a nativity play. But it was a nativity play with a difference. They didn't just do the sort of towels on the head and the donkey and all that. <laughs> they did this thing in the local church, which was basically they had the nativity scene and the statues but they had people from the community played by us kids saying what Christmas meant to them. And I played this old man, and I had to come down to the front of the uh, church and say, and look at the scene and say, this means nothing to me. I fought two world wars for this country, and nobody talks to me, nobody listens to me. So what's this got to do with me? And I just had to do that, that was it. But I got right into it. <laughs> I got right. I was watching old man thinking, okay, I'm going to have a stick, I'm going to have a coat, I'll stick a hat on. I was doing the walking and stuff like that. I looked at it physically different and stuff. And my mom, who came to all my things, she said afterwards, she said, I didn't know it was you until you got to the front of the side. I thought, oh, they've, they've let somebody in, you know. <laughs> and she said, but then when you got and you started talking, I was like, that's our David. Uh, and I don't know what that was, but I, I thought, wow, that's what you're supposed to do, you know. So from then on, I failed my 11 plus, which I well know, done. still today have such an anger about <laughs> the fact that, you know, the whole of my secondary education was put down to this exam I had to do at 11. Yeah. And everything was decided for me after that. It was terrible. And I'd, I'd been in four or five schools by then, so... But when I was on my secondary school, which was a secondary modern, and the word secondary always bothered me as well, uh, they did no drama at all. I mean, in fact, they didn't do that much of anything. Just as long as you were quiet in class, that was enough. And I got to a point where I thought, I really wasn't having a great time. And I thought, when was I last really happy about my life and stuff? And it was when I was doing this little play, you know. Also at that junior school, I'd done The Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz, which I'd loved. So I started doing this thing of just saying to people, I want to be an actor, I want to be an actor, I want to be an actor. And thankfully, I grew up in Liverpool where that wasn't weird. You know? <laughs> the fact that you didn't want to be in a band was weird. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, they took it seriously. It was a, it's a city that takes the art seriously. And so somebody at one point said, have you been to the Everyman? And I went to the Everyman Theatre. I went to the Youth Theatre. I got to the box office and I said, oh, you know, I want, I want to be an actor. <laughs> and the woman said, oh, you want the youth theatre? You go down here, round the back, you know. And all that. I said, OK. So I went round the back of this theatre. And I walked to this door, and it was like this noise behind this door of people going crazy. Just this absolute people having fun. Were you not shy at first? Well, I think when I stood outside, and I thought, if I go through that door, my life's going to change. And I didn't go through the door. I thought, I'm not doing it. I wasn't mm. ready. And I sat down. And then this rather pretty girl ran past me and through the door, and I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. <laughs> you know. So I went in, and that's where I found my tribe. And you know this. You know, I found people who were doing the thing I wanted to do. It's like being good at football. You find your football team, you know, whatever it was. I found people who were experimenting in drama, and, and it was wonderful. And the everyman at that time, we'll come back to the everyman as well, but the everyman at that time was... Really vibrant place. I mean, they had people on stage like Pete Potherswhite, Julie Walters, uh, they, and they were all wonderful to me. Uh, nobody told me where to go. They, you know, when I said I want to be an actor, they were all like, well, you know, what are you doing about it? How are you? You know, they were all inclusive and, and polite to me. And then they were, I left Liverpool and I went to work in a theatre company in Wolverhampton. And my best mate was an actor, is an actor called Ian Hart. 
And he told me that they were holding auditions for this thing in Liverpool called One Summer, which was, it was a new, new television channel coming on called Channel 4. <laughs> and it hadn't even come on yet. You know, I was like, well, what, more than three channels? What are we going to do? <laughs> so, written by Willie Russell. Wow. By two lads who ran away to Wales. And I went up from Wolverhampton, went back to Liverpool. And the first audition was in the Adelphi Hotel, which I'd never been to before. It was like, you know, it was like, honestly, it was like, you know, going to sort of like the Four Seasons in LA, as far as I was concerned. It was like the greatest place in the world. Mm. And you got in and you stood in a room and you had a number. And the casting director said, okay, uh, five, seven, and 12, you can stay, everybody else goes. And luckily, that was one of my numbers. That was the first one. Then you read a couple of lines and they whittled it down to, in the end, a screen test, and I did a screen test. And in the show, and we got it, and it was, as I say, two kids who ran away from Liverpool to North Wales. And in North Wales, they met this sort of hermit-like guy played by the wonderful James Hazeldean, who's no longer with us, mm. who became a bit of a mentor for me. And the story was that he was an arts teacher, and he'd fallen in love with one of his pupils. Nothing had happened, but he'd fallen in love, and somebody had started the rumour, and he'd been kicked out of the profession. And he, in the show, it was a five-part series for Channel 4, he wrote, he uh, did this little book for us, an illustration of Billy and Icky with the two characters. And it was an illustration of our adventures with him. And at the end of the job, they gave us that book. Oh, brilliant. They'd made lots of copies of it. And all the crew had signed it. <laughs> Jimmy had signed it, but all the crew had signed it. And I have it on my desk. And, you know, all the comments are really positive. There's no cynicism in the comments. Nobody's saying, you know, uh, don't give up your day job or anything like that. Things that we're all really good at, which is deflecting that type of emotion. None of them did it. For me and the other actor, a guy called Spencer Lee, all the comments were things like, it's been such a pleasure working with you. Hmm. Hope it goes well. Keep going. You know, uh, well done, star. You know, sort of things like that. Everything, every comment had a positivity around it to go on. And I was so touched by that. And I learned so much on that job. You know, I, I hadn't done anything professional. I didn't know things like, like you don't tell it in order. You know, I didn't know that. I'd watched telly, but I didn't know that you started with, if I'm doing a five-part drama, I might start with a scene from episode five mm. on my first day. Mm. I knew nothing like that. I knew nothing about being prepared for the day. And Jimmy and the director, a wonderful director called Gordon Fleming, again, no longer with us, big Scottish guy, you know, and you were never going to mess around with Gordon, you know, you make sure you knew your lines, you know. He was great, a uh, real taskmaster. But it taught me so much about this job. And also, I'd been fantasising about wanting to be an actor. I'd done some theatre, I'd done some youth theatre, I'd sort of worked with Ken Campbell a little bit. But I'd never done any film or television, never done anything like that. And my first love in acting was seeing the film Kez. That's where I really went, oh, they make things about people like me. You know, I really saw it in a way that really touched me and troubled me, actually. You know, Billy's story is very troubling. Mm. And I wanted to sort that out, but I wanted to be in that world. And when I did One Summer, I was walking away from a professional experience with people saying, you can do this. This is open to you. So how did you go on from there? So then what happened was with Channel 4, things like Brookside were happening. And Liverpool at that time, you know, it's had its ups and downs, but culturally, you know, we had Willie, uh, Alan Bleasdale, 
We had the Playhouse and the Everyman. Mm -hmm. We had Brookside, which Phil Redmond was doing. So it felt on the up. You know, as a young, I was 18 at that time. Being a young Scouse kid was, I could have gone on, you know, I could have gone on with that. And Jimmy Hazeldean said to me, go to drama school. He said, look, you can play Scouse lads for the rest of your life. If you want to do Scouse lads, do it. It'll be there. If you want a career, go to drama school. Mm. And I was like, well, where am I going to go? You know, I don't, he said, just audition and audition. And I auditioned for about five or six places. And I got into RADA. And I was quite blasé about it. I was like, you know, well, of course I get in. <laughs> uh, but inside I was thinking, oh, my God. I'm going to Royal Academy. Oh, my God. But I was walking around like that, you know. But inside I was panicking, absolutely panicking. And I have to say, even today, when I get a job, I think they meant to give it to someone else. <laughs> even today, when I walk into a job, I think after the first day, they'll see the rushes and they'll come back and they'll say, look, you know what? It was great, <laughs> but, you know, I still have that today. And I don't really know any actor that doesn't have that. No. You still have it. I'm sort of quite thankful for it now because that sort of fear and insecurity drives me as well as sort of... It can hinder me, but it can drive me as well. I think it's why actors are so encouraging to each other. Yeah. Because nobody else says it. Yeah, it's, it's just weird about the fact that, you know, it can be inclusive, it can be tough as well. I mean, you can get people who aren't like that, obviously. Oh, you've heard about me? Yes. <laughs> but mostly it's a, it, is a, it is a collaborative thing. People need to find their own way of working, but it is collaborative. What an extraordinary thing to do, though, to take that piece of advice when you've got a career... And you've just done a big television series to say, yeah. go to drama school, to but stop Jim, it. If know. Jimmy had said to me, jump into the fire, I would have done it. I mean, I, was in, I adored him. He was an actor at that time, 35, I was 17, going on 18. I'd seen him on the telly, which was like <laughs> massive. You know, if you've been on the telly, yeah. you know, he was in this thing called the Omega Factor. He was, you know, but he was also a stalwart of the RSC. He'd done a lot of, sort of big theatre stuff. He was from Salford. He was a working-class lad from Salford. So that was important for me. Mm. And he'd been playing leads at the Royal Shakespeare Company. That was important for me, that you could do that trajectory, that that was tangible. So um, did you feel that in order to become a good actor, you had to do those things? You had to go through that process? I felt that what I wanted to do was step away from what I was comfortable with. Mm. And I think I've always tried to do that was I thought, I want to be tested. Also, you know, my biggest critic, like all of us, is myself. And the, the shackles on me are mine. I build them myself like Marley's ghost. So that thing of going, well, the RSC isn't for me. You know, that's posh people do that. Mm. Then I had to challenge that. No one was saying that to me. That was my voice inside my head was saying it. And I had to sort of get over that because that fear is to do with holding me back and keeping me down and stuff like that. And I have m massive stuff like that mm. all the time. Still have it now. Where that voice in my head that wants me to stay at home and stay in bed and watch Netflix, that's massive. The only actors who aren't like that are the ones who went to public school. I don't know about that. I'm being flippant. But, yeah, but, but, but the, the reason I jump on that is because I get asked a lot about the working-class voice in theatre and working-class actors and would I be an actor today and da-da-da and all those things. And sometimes you can be a, a mouthpiece for that. It's, it, it's fashion. It goes up and down all the time. Mm. But I, one of the things that I was... When I went to drama school and when I became a professional actor, I met something... I met a group of people that I'd never met before. And that was posh people. I'd never met posh people. <laughs> and posh people really gave me the whammy. I mean, I gave them the, the clubs to hit me with, 
They weren't doing it deliberately. I was doing it to myself, but they, they intimidated me. And posh women, forget it. <laughs> you know, that was, like, oh, you know. But then I got to know those people mm. and I found that they had just as much insecurities as I had. Different types of stuff, different types of things. They might have had more opportunities than me. They might have gone to schools that had four theatres and they did Shakespeare and they had, you know, all that. But they still had to get across the white line and do it. So the opportunities might be different. So when I talk about it, I talk about the opportunities. My big bugbear at the moment is the fact that if you want to be an actor, you can go to drama school, it's open to you. You know, it's an audition process or whatever. It doesn't matter where you come from. But getting into the profession, that first five, six years is difficult. It's really difficult to make ends meet as an actor in those first four or five years. So ipso facto, it becomes a middle-class profession because in order to get through those years, you have to rely on the bank of mum and dad. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the difficulty for me. I said, how do we support people from low-income backgrounds who want to be in the creative arts through those early years? You can get them to university, you can get them to drama school, you can get them inside that type of education. But how do you support them in those early years to find themselves through it? That's mm. what... And so many people now, they're condemned in their first job. You know, if you do a bad first job, particularly writers or directors, if you get a director who does his first film or her first film and it doesn't get good reviews, forget it. Yeah. And you think, well, what type of nurturing is that? You know, so... And, of course, those people will pay you back for that investment. Well, yeah, yeah, we'll pay us all back. I mean, God, the arts, what the arts give this country and its GDP is unbelievable. Yeah. You know, it's unbelievable. And it's always saying, I hate this thing of this term of soft options. That in education, if you do art or music or drama, they're seen as soft options. And it really makes me... I understood his reasons for doing it when Rishi Sunak recently said about mathematics. Because that's his background. He comes from that background. But actually, that's not what we should be supporting totally around everybody. Not everybody. That's not everybody's forte. So you're finding out other people's forte is what makes them think. Mm. And the thing I think about the arts in particular, all aspects of the arts, is that you have to have an empathetic gene in order to do it. The first thing you start with as an actor or any artist is, what's it like to be them? It's the first question you ask. What's it like to be this other person? As soon as you start from that viewpoint, you're in an empathetic world, an understanding, knowing what it's like to be there, knowing what it's like to earn that money, knowing what it's like to be through that uh, crisis in your life. Mm. You're asking those questions from an individual characterization. So therefore, that's, to me, that's a really great thing to bring in educationally and the grassroots in everything. So it's interesting that right from the start, though, I mean, you're well known for the fact that you put a lot of research into the, when you play a part. You yeah. like to study the character, you like to read up about it. You're famous for it. Mm -hmm. And yet, as a 14-year-old, or earlier even, infant school, yeah, it was, yeah. you're studying old people and watching how they move. Yeah, I mean, that's it, isn't it? It's weird. I mean, it's obviously, that's where I found my way to this. Mm. It's like you give somebody a ball and they start jogging it around and sort of kicking it over their head. You think, oh, he's doing quite good. You know, there's something there. Yeah. So that was my equivalent of that, was studying other people. And also having the chance to exercise it. I've always been jealous of writers and, and painters because I need to be employed. Like we all need an audience, but I can't practice my craft to the best of my ability in my bedroom. I need to be part of, uh, with other people. I mm. need to be in part of, you know, a company. 
I'm an interpretive artist, not a conceptual artist, you know. So I need other people around me, and I've always been very aware of that. Mm. So I've always been jealous of someone like, you know, my son's a musician. You know, I hear him playing his guitar in the bedroom, I think, God, I wish I could do that. (laughs) I'm sure I can go there and do some Shakespeare's bit, but it doesn't... It's not the same thing. I want to, you know, it's not, it doesn't fill me with the same sort of thing that I can see playing the guitar or painting or writing does for other people. Yeah. And I'm very, I've come to terms with that. I'm not a writer or, or a painter or any of those things. Mm. I like to be in a big group of people. I love the rehearsal room. And I, I mean, I like performing as well, but I like to be with people. So, yeah, so that book. Well, it's interesting that you remember yeah. that artistic thing from it, not the experience of doing it, not the mates, not having the good time, which you must have done. But, but what you, I remember is the, the is the book, but I remember a collective group of people encouraging me. Uh-huh. You know, one of my really difficult things, again, the thing I suffer with inside myself, is a cynicism. And, and to get a gift from a group of people who I'd been working with for four or five months that lacked cynicism in their comments, mm. that was the thing that really propelled me to go, I want to be inside this world. And that was brilliant. Because I do think, you know, sometimes I can be offered things or I can be asked to do things and I think, oh, why, why do I want to do that? Why do I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to get up bed today. <laughs> you know, why? You know, it's only going to fail. It's only... And I have to really quieten that voice and sort of step into the you know i do a podcast myself uh, <laughs> but i when i talk to actors about one role and i interviewed uh, Anne reed and she said this great thing where she said you know i like to put myself in the way of surprise and that's sort of what i want to do you know i do do a lot of research because i like it I, that's my inner geek but i don't arrive at a set knowing everything i want to do no I know who this man is, I know where he's been through, and, but I'm really open to interpretation when I step into it with other people. I'm not closed off. Mm. I mean, I've often said about being an actor is you have to do two very diametrically opposed things, which is you have to be open because that's where all the best stuff is. You have to be open to what's going on around you, what people are saying about you, what people are saying to you. You just have to be open. But the other thing you have to do is grow a thick skin mm. because people will say terrible things to you. They'll write terrible things about you. They want to keep you down. And you've got to do those two things, which is really weird, and fight each other all the time. Yes, it's odd, isn't it? Because the the bulk of what happens to you as an actor is rejection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, if you don't like people saying no to you, don't be an actor. No. You know, I mean, that's all. it's about rejection all the time. And you have to get used to that. And and now people are doing these (laughs) self-tapes. I do them a bit, but, you know, younger actors have to do them all the time. And there's no interaction with anybody in the room. It's just them and their phone and their boyfriend or girlfriend reading the lines off or whatever it is. And that is really difficult, really, really hard, uh, because then you don't hear back. You know, you've just sent it out into the atmosphere and nothing comes back to you. So it is hard. And I really, you know, I think it's a profession that you have to sort of grab hold of and, and walk tall in, but it, you do get knocked all, all the time. Mm. Well, let's put those caricatures in that <laughs> book signed right. from one summer into yeah. the time capsule. That's your first item to yeah. remind us of hopefully the way that it will go for other people. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your second thing? So my second thing is quite weird. <laughs> <laughs> my second thing is a pebble. And I'm not particularly spiritual, I don't think. I mean, I I guess I am spiritual in the way that, you know, I I know there's something out there and all that. I'm not particularly religious, I guess, is what I would say. But I, about six years ago, I was walking along one of the beaches here 
and picking up things and throwing them and doing all that like you do on a beach. And this pebble caught my eye. And I just saw it and I thought, oh, that's nice. And I picked it up and, and something happened. That it just fitted in my hand, like brilliantly, perfectly. And my, something happened to my body that it sort of chose me in that way. It's so weird. <laughs> I can imagine if my brothers were here now, they'd be like, oh, God. <laughs> but, but it's true. It's absolutely undoubtedly true. That so, I picked it up and something happened in, in its connection with me. And I put it in my pocket. I didn't really know what was going on. I put it in my pocket. That was it. And I've kept it since then. And it comes on trips with me, taking it everywhere. And it was really, it has an energy whether the energy is mine or whatever, something happened at that moment. It might, it might not be about the pebble or whatever, but it was about the moment of me doing that action. And the other thing that happened with the pebble was that, as I said before, you know, we all have this, but when I'm in that negative thought process, when I am my worst enemy about what's going on in my life and who I am and what I'm doing, my choices or whatever they are, that voice can get very loud in me. And so what I used to do was I used to, there's a great thing called The Artist's Way, which is a book that gives me lots of exercises and what to do to deal with all those things. I love that book. And what she says is you do these daily pages where you write three, a four pages in the morning. Sometimes I'm just like... <laughs> but what was happening to me was that even inside those pages, I was right at the centre of it. It was a very self-centred, and I mean that in a positive way, a very self-centred exercise. But it could also be very self-critical. It could be very full of self-fear as well in that exercise. And what I started to do with this pebble was I would use the time in the morning just to describe the pebble, just to describe what it looked like in this hotel room in New York or my bedroom in London or whatever. Just describe it, like a writing exercise. Write what it looked like, write what it was like in this certain light, what it felt like in my hand, the weight of it. Just putting myself outside of myself and my thoughts of this external thing on the paper. And then I would do things like I would write about its journey. How did it get here? Where did it start? And then you're in a whole environmental thing then about your place in this universe. You're in this thing about right-sizing yourself, of going, okay, this is what I'm doing here. And it was just, I do it now all the time, it was just something to take me out of my mad thought patterns that were happening. I think the other thing about being an actor is it's to do with rejection, but it's also to do with judgment. You're being judged all the time. You're asking people to judge you. Mm. It's what you do. You step forward and you go, what do you think? So you can, your thoughts can get very much affected about yourself. You can be totally bringing things back to you. You know, I can be driving my car and some guy three streets away can beep his horn. I think, what's he doing over me? Why is he doing that? I can take it personally. Mm. And I have to stop myself taking things personally that are not my concern. So what's really interesting about the pebble is that it just, for a moment in my day, in some sort of meditative-like way, it takes me out of those. It stops that thought, those thoughts. And I've used it like that ever since. And so it's become very important for me. It, can be, it could be anything. But it's become very important to me in my daily routine or weekly routine about how I sort of get out of the way of myself. Mm. I use it in my work. So if I get nervous, I'm in my dressing room, I'll do that. I'll just write a page about what does the pebble look like. What's the, it just gets me, it stops that bloody noise. 
which I have, and it's, it's great. Mm. And I have to sort of work it all the time. So it's very important to me. It's a very difficult thing to do, isn't it, to recognise the fact that for almost everybody else in the world, you are very unimportant. Yeah. And that mm. you don't affect them at all. So mm. most things that happen are not about you. And it's a difficult thing because you have to take responsibility for your actions and who you are. That's, it starts with you. It starts with me. Mm. But also, sometimes you can take massive responsibility for things that you have no, no control over or no, have no effect you know, on. Mm. And so it's about that thing of stepping back and finding out where that middle bit is. You know, even things like the environmental crisis that we're living in now, it's that thing of, like, what can I do? I can't do the big stuff, but I need to be able to sleep at night. So I have to sort of find out what I can do, where I, how can I change? Mm -hmm. Things like that all the time. Finding where my power is, which I can have an effect on, which doesn't stop me from giving up, doesn't mm. stop me from getting out of bed. You know, I can still be positive and front-footed about it. But do you think that you picked that pebble up and felt that way because you'd got to that point in your life? I mean, that you may well have picked up pebbles before that fitted you perfectly yeah. and just not noticed it. Maybe. My, my, my real thing about that is I don't really... I'm not bothered about why or when or that, mm. that that sort of analytical thing around that all i know is something shifted in me at that point it might have been the right time whatever it was and what shifted took me through a portal that was really about self-care mm. and that helped me that suddenly i was in a place that was actually caring and lovely and and sort of positive for me coming out of a period of negativity it was a period of real positivity for me to be able to go, I can put my energy into this mm. and take myself out of this sort of narrative. And that was really important for me. And also in my work, you know, it, it sort of started that thing of helping me, obviously, when I'm nervous or stuff. But what sort of started to happen to me before the pebble, actually, but certainly around 10, 12 years ago, mm. don't take this the wrong way, <laughs> but I started to think less about the audience. What really made me feel liberated as an actor was I stopped thinking about the audience. I knew they were there. I knew they were listening to me. I knew they were sort of part of the process. But as soon as I started listening to an audience and wanting... It's like that Elaine Stritch thing. She said, you know, if you follow an audience, they'll take you straight to the whorehouse. <laughs> it's that thing of, for me, I was so... I used to be so affected by response and laughter or, or you know, that feeling of frisson of uh, upset or something. And I thought, I, I have to start doing this for my own time. For what, I'm, what do I want to do? Mm. Where do I want to be in this? What am I going to test myself in? Those things. And that was so liberating suddenly. You can stop blaming the audience as well. Quite stop often, blaming the audience. But also, you know, instead of going like that with an audience, you're saying, come over here. Mm. And that was really helpful for me as an actor on stage, was the fact that I was there to be with the other actors, to, tell, to be on, with this. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I'm still aware of the audience, but as soon as I started stepping that way, I'd lost it. And it was, that was a big lesson for me. And, and when I came to that pebble moment and started to take myself away from my everyday practice and look out, outside of myself. It was a very similar freedom that I was suddenly involved, but it wasn't all down to me in that way. I wasn't really projecting in that way like mm. I had. Been. So that was it. Lovely.
Mm-hmm. Well, the bad thing, we're all going to the beach immediately <laughs> after this. Yes, I think sometimes in life you need to be open to those things. You need to yeah. be ready to accept it. I took my grandchildren to um, the Jurassic Coast. Right. And uh, because of my nature, I thought, well, we'll never find a fossil. So I went to the fossil shop and bought dozens of them. What, and placed them around like Easter eggs? spread them around eggs. the beach, yeah. Like an Easter egg hunt. And, the, and we walked onto the beach, and I'm thinking, well, I'll put one over there and one over there. And my grandson went, oh, look! And he picked up the biggest ammonite you've ever seen. Yeah. But not the one that you placed Nothing down. to do with me at all. <laughs> so I think, you know, sometimes people who, yeah. who don't think they have to mould the world yeah. can, can be open to those things. Yeah, yeah, and it's that thing of, you know, it doesn't mean that you don't plan. I plan a lot. It's like the research I do. Mm. But how it turns out has nothing to do with me. It's like, you know, I can sort of do all my research, I can do that. But how it lands is not, it's sort of none of my business. Yeah. And television is full of that because television, I used to go mad when I was doing television because I'd go to the set, I'd do my day's work, I'd do a brilliant day's work, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd have stayed up all night to do it get to the set, I'd sort of be bawling and crying or whatever the set, and then I'd go to the screening and they'd cut it out. Mm. And I'd be livid. But now, and now I realise that that hasn't taken away that day. Just because the director didn't put it in his film or her film doesn't make that day any less. I still had that experience. I still know I can do that. I still had the acting experience of being there on that day. Mm. doesn't matter. And it's not my responsibility what he or she does with it. That's theirs. That's what they're paid for. You know, and that is, for me, it's the experience of, you know, it's that Uncle Tully thing of, like, you know, just being there now, being there and doing it. That was the thing that really made me go, oh, this is so liberating as an actor because I can be right here in this moment. What happens to you after that is up to them. The one area that slightly trips up on is reviews. <laughs> So reviews, if not in television, that doesn't bother me, actually, television or film, doesn't bother me. But in the theatre, it's really difficult because so much is hanging on those reviews. Mm. So if you get bad reviews, then people aren't coming and it's all that stuff. And people, Sometimes when I've been in shows that have really bombed, really, really bombed, and there's a solidarity amongst the actors, mm. and that's been really great, and yeah. you can have that experience. But sometimes if you get a show and there's eight people in it, four get great reviews and four get terrible reviews, <laughs> that can be a bit difficult. That, <laughs> that can start getting a little bit... And also, sometimes, if you're in a play, of course, always you get the review at the beginning of the experience and you still have four months to go. Yeah. And sometimes the worst thing that can happen to you is when a review says, I love the bit when... Da, 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 <laughs> and you think, don't tell me that, because every time I come at it, I'm thinking... <laughs> when he says that line, da, 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 and you think, oh... Yeah. You know, and, and avoiding reviews is really hard, I think. But almost impossible. Yeah, they because stick they're all the outside board. the theatre. Yeah, put them out by the stage door, yeah. they stick them up. So... You have to learn about that. But um, mostly I'm, I'm just doing that thing where I'm trying to keep it right in this moment, mm. in the time. And also that thing of don't recreate, just create. Mm. Every night when I go out, I'm not trying to recreate what I did last night. I'm trying to create it tonight. What's it like tonight? And I love that. Fabulous, yeah. yeah. Brilliant, all right. So that's a pebble in there as well. Mm-hmm. That's two things. What else do you want to put in? Okay, ad break time, so that our theatre audience can go to the loo. You can go as well if you want to. See you in a wee while.
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back. Hands washed? Good. Then let's return to the Cut Theatre in Halesworth and the Ink Festival to discover what else David Morrissey would like to have in his time capsule. So, listen, you're going to have to bear with me on this one because I'm going to say a word which is really, really bad to say. <laughs> and that word is Macbeth. Don't fucking say that! <laughs> so, we talked about the Everyman Theatre. So, that was really one of the big professional moments in my life where my life just changed completely. I was 15... I hated school. My dad was very ill. He was about to die. I didn't know that, but he was really ill. And I walked into this room and I met my tribe. I met the people who were, like, there for me. I met those actors, all of whom were fantastic with me. I've had the opportunity in later life to go up to those actors and say thank you. You know, people like Pete Pothos, Anton Lesser. God, Anton Lesser was in a play at the Everyman. I went up to him really shy. In the first half, it was a play called Cloud Nine, and in the first half, he plays a woman, and in the second half, he plays this gay guy. And I only thought he was in the second half. I didn't know he played this woman. He was so brilliant. And I went up to him, and I was chatting to him, and he went, that was me. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) And he couldn't have been more generous. So all of those people I went up to, actors and directors, and they were all coming to the shop. Come in. Please come in. They were all doing that to me. And it was brilliant. And it was a really important time for me in terms of my own personal development. Also, this sounds weird as well, but it's true. In that place, that theatre, youth theatre, the theatre itself, I felt safe. It was a safe place for me to be. I didn't feel the world was that safe outside of there, both emotionally and physically. But inside that theatre, I was safe. I felt safety there. Mm. And I loved it. And I did some show. Ken Campbell ran the theatre for a while and got us all the youth theatre in. The other thing that happened was during the youth theatre, they put people from the youth theatre on the board of the Everyman itself. So I was on the Everyman board. I was there with councillors and, and sort of directors and stuff like that. It was really inclusive. And people would turn to me and think, well, what do you think? You know, and I was like, what? You know. How old were you? So I was 15 at Amazing. that time. 
And they were really, there was a wonderful woman called Margaret Simy, and she was a counselor, Liverpool counselor. And she was just amazing and sort of, you know, you would say things thinking, oh, no one's going to listen to me. And she was absolutely engaged with what you had to say. What's your experience of this, David? What do you think we should be doing? What, what would you like to see in the theatre? I was like, God. <laughs> but it was, she saw me and she heard me and that was brilliant. So I went to drama school. I did all that. I've been to the RSC, done all that. And they, the Everyman was closing down. Uh, they were going to knock it down and rebuild it. And the artistic director at the time, Gemma Bodney, said, look, I'd like you to do the last show in the old theatre. What would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to do Macbeth. And she said, OK. <laughs> and it was really important for me. The theatre was closing down. It did needed knocking down. It was like, you know, a death trap backstage mm. and stuff. But just walking in, the smell of the place, the atmosphere of the place, it, it meant so much to me. You know, it was my palace, really. So I went back there, we rehearsed, which was great. It was packed every night. It's a tough play, as you know, very emotional play. It was a very emotional time for me, being on that stage where it all started. My mother had died by then as well. And it was very, you know, my brothers and sister came to see me. Loads of mates from school came to see me. Hmm. And it's a big journey, that role. And I had this jacket. <laughs> I had this jacket which I found, which was like an old sort of like army jacket. And they put this armour on, on one sleeve of it. And again, it fitted me perfectly. I loved it. But every night I'd get into the uh, dressing room and I'd uh, you know, do the first half, all that. Second half, I had to run off, put it on. And when I put it on, because it, it, you're then hitting this second half, which is real madness. It is real apocalyptic vision of the world. He's going to bring down everything. And all the promises that have been given him, to him are coming at him, literally coming at him. So it's a, it's a breakdown. He's having a terrible sort of PTSD breakdown, really. And when I put this jacket on, I thought, right, I'm ready. I'm ready for this bit. And we go. And of course, like Shakespeare always does, like in Hamlet and stuff, you're on stage, you're never off stage for two and a bit hours. And at the end, you have this massive fight <laughs> with like big swords and stuff. So you had that. And it was a great experience. I loved it. It's the only play I've ever done where at the end I thought, I'm not done here, I'm not finished with this. The great thing about Shakespeare for me is that you're constantly rediscovering it as you're playing it. Different things come at you all the time. When I did Mark Antony, you know, you would read, with, that was a very modern setting, you'd read something in the paper about, you know, war or whatever, and you'd take that into the play that night. Same with Macbeth. You'd, have, you'd read something or see something on the news or something had happened, and suddenly a line had come out. What's brilliant about him is he writes about the human experience, which never changes. Mm. So as you're saying it, it's like new, new minted every time you're out there because it means something different to you every time you say it. And I never felt like I'd mind that play enough. And on the last night, I uh, sort of hung back. We always went to the, the, there's the bar at the front. I hung back and in the end, there was just me in this dressing room with this jacket, and I just wept for hours, ages, because it was so, it, was the, it felt like the closure of something, so physically with the building, but also there I was playing a Shakespearean lead in this theatre, which I was a snotty-nosed kid I'd started in. I want to be an actor. And there I was doing it, mm. and doing this part. 
And that just really, I couldn't get over it. And I just went. And so I've still got the jacket. It's in my office. So that meant, it meant a big deal for me because it was, it was a real start to finish journey. Obviously, it's not finished yet, but within that building, and that building closing down, being knocked down, it had a real sort of trajectory for me mm. from thinking about it to achieving it and having it. And I could see it. And it, was, it felt like a little bit of closure around that. And was there a closure with regard to your parents as well? Yeah, because my dad never saw me. I just, you know, my dad, I, I wanted to be an actor. And my dad was like, OK, yeah. But he didn't take it seriously. And also, he was quite a distant person. So all that stuff was there. I didn't really, didn't have a close relationship with him. Although he present, he was there all the time with me growing up. He wasn't an absent father. He just didn't talk that much. Mm. And so that was difficult. So then there's a lot of stuff in the play about them wanting to be parents, losing a child. So all that was sort of really crazy. My mum couldn't have been more supportive about me wanting to be an actor. She was very proud of it. I never got that thing with my mum of, like, when are you going to get a proper job, mm -hmm. you know? I, I did get that thing of, why aren't you in this? You know, she did that. <laughs> But never, she was always very supportive in that way. Yeah, almost but, strangely as if, why didn't you tell them? Yeah. As if it's your fault. Yeah, they yeah. got your number, Dave. <laughs> you know. I remember the first job I ever did, uh, I left drama school, I left RADA, and I came back to Liverpool and did a play uh, called WCPC at the Playhouse, which was all about cottaging and toilets. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> policeman cottaging into it. And uh, so one scene I had to kiss a bloke. Another scene I had to sort of get very intimate with another bloke. <laughs> then another scene I had to come on dressed as Liza Minnelli in the stockings and suspenders and the bowler hat. <laughs> and then at the end they strip off naked and dance around singing YMCA. Uh, and, sounds uh, like a normal Saturday yeah. night for me. And uh, <laughs> my mum came to see it with my auntie Pat. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God. And I went backstage afterwards and she was there waiting for me. She went, have you been eating properly? <laughs> <laughs> and, I was like, and I was like, OK. So, you know, it was That's that type brilliant. of thing, really. But I think, you know, I was very supported by my mum. She didn't like, you know, I played a lot of roles where my character was not great, didn't make great moral choices. Mm. And she sometimes, you know, would comment on my life. Can't you play someone nice, David? <laughs> you know. So there, there was that. But uh, I have an odd relationship with Liverpool now in that sense that, you know, my family are there, my brothers and my sister. But I'm, I'm from there. But I don't go... I go back often, obviously, with the football and stuff. I'm a big mm. Liverpool fan. But, you know, I've lived away from Liverpool longer than I ever lived there. Mm. I still feel very Scouse and Liverpudlian, but I'm really grateful to the city. I'm grateful for the fact that it's right, that like, I didn't get on with school, I hated school. And what I would do is I'd get off, you had to take two buses to my school, and the second bus I would cross the road and I'd get the bus into the city centre. But in the city centre there was this massive public library, and I'd just go in there and read. Mm. And that's what I did. I didn't go to school. Because school, that, why Kez had such a big effect on me was because the school was just like my school. It was not a seat of learning. It was a seat of just keeping your head down and mm. making sure you didn't get your head kicked in. That's what my school was. The worst thing I could have done in class is if a teacher asked a question that I knew the answer to was do that. <laughs> that was it. I, that was licensed to kick my head in.
And I've always resented the fact that that educational establishment did that to so many of us. Mm -hmm. It was not a place of inquisition. No, same experience. So I, but I knew I needed that. So I would go, I found it in the city. I found it in Liverpool. The library was open to me. I went there in my school uniform. Anyone could have said, come up to me and said, what are you doing in here? But I was reading a book, so they they left me alone. (laughs) And then I'd go up to the everyman and I'd watch theatre. We'd always be let in. I'd watch different nights and I'd see the actors, these brilliant actors, changing it. I'd see the audience changing it. That was my education. Fantastic. Well, I'm aware that time is racing on, I'm afraid. Okay. So we're going to have to put that jacket into the time capsule. That's a third item. Right. So uh, why don't you talk about your love of Liverpool then, the football team? So, yeah, I'm a big Liverpool fan. And again, this is to do with family. So my father and my eldest brother are Everton supporters. (laughs) My father's dead now, obviously, but they were Everton supporters. (laughs) And my next brother, who's eight years older than me, he decided to be contrary, as he often is, and he was going to support Liverpool. But Liverpool were the second team, not just the second team, they were in a completely different division. They were in the second division and Everton were in the first division. Everton were the big team. Mm. And he decided to support Liverpool because he wanted to support the underdog. That's what he wanted to do. And when my mum was pregnant with me, he said to my dad, if it's a boy, he's going to be a Liverpool fan. My dad was like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I was born and my brother made it his mission to get me (laughs) Liverpool. And when I was about seven or eight, he bought me a Steve Highway shirt Mm. with the number nine on the back. He'd bribe me programmes. He'd tell me all about the match he'd been to see. Uh, honestly, he was like such an influence on me about the team. And then, of course, the team became... Shankly arrived. It happened before I was born with the Shankly stuff. But Shankly turned that team around and they became this great winning side. And it's given me up and down pleasure and nonsense and all that. And if you don't understand football, then it's hard to talk about. But it, again, that tribal thing in a healthy way, it's given me that. And I've passed it on to my son. <laughs> my son went to school in North London, obviously, and Liverpool were playing Arsenal in the FA Cup final. And he was very sort of like he'd say to his friends, I support Liverpool. It was like this. <laughs> and the final happened and Arsenal were winning 1-0 and at halftime I could see his little lip going and he was like, how am I going to go to school on Monday? And then Michael Owen scored two goals in the second half and that was it. And then I knew I had him then. It was great. And we've travelled around everywhere to cup finals and European Champions League finals and stuff. And we go to quite a few finals and Liverpool would always lose. Uh, But we went to one final in Madrid against Tottenham and we won. So I have the ticket. I have all the tickets anyway, but this is the ticket of the winning final. And it's, you know, it's a real connection with him. We text each other all the time now about it. You know, it's something that is, it's a dialogue between us. But actually what it is, it's about a communication that is really open and alive Mm. and very sort of present. We can argue, we can shout, we can sort of get exasperated, we can share our joy. It's a very important thing to me in terms of communication with my son. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's my next thing is, is, the, is the team. And that was the most... That was the final where neither of those teams really should have been there. <laughs> uh, if <laughs> you don't know the, the story of that, uh, Liverpool were 3-0 down against Barcelona yeah. in the semi-final and won 4-0. In the second leg. In the second leg yeah. and got through. And so I was away then. So I was filming in Malaysia when that happened. 
So when the second leg happened, I thought, well, there's never going to, I'm not going to stay up and watch this match. I'm going to go to bed. We're going to, and I woke up and there was like 17 messages on my thing from, from my son. Just go, yeah, come on, I could feel him hyperventilating in the thing. And I was like, in fact, I had to phone him and I got one message from him. I phoned him and said, what's going on? And he said, we won, we won. So that was it. So then we went to that final. Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, what a great trip. So, um, well, let's squeeze in then something that you'd like to put in there and forget, if that's possible. Well, it's interesting that I think whether I forget it or not, I think the thing that I I feel I had closure with mm. would be the jacket. I feel that that was something that it's nice for me to look back on. I like it. You know, I like having that feeling. But it was very much the end of a journey for me from being someone with an ambition or an idea of what I wanted to do to getting to the fruition of it in such a big way. Because the other thing about Shakespeare is I always thought it wasn't for me. And when I got to the RSC, that we were talking before, there was a wonderful woman called uh, Cicely Berry who was head of voice and stuff. And I went to see her on the first day and I was doing a Shakespeare speech. And I started talking like that. And she went, what do you do? And I said, I'm doing my Shakespeare voice. And she went, no, do it like you. Talk like he wrote for you. And I went, well, I can't talk like that. And she went, do it as you. And I did it as me, and it just came off the page. Mm. Because it has a rhythm, it's about, you know, it's so, the character I was playing was a working class character, and it worked. And so stand on the Liverpool stage and do that part, and it mean all that stuff for me. Family, friends, career, Jimmy saying go to drama school, all those things, it all came together in that moment. So I think I could safely put that away and go, that's okay. Lovely. But I would never forget it. No. It's, not a, it's not an object to forget. It's an object that I think I can let that go now. Mm. There's not a more exciting moment in any play, I think, than the moment when Macbeth is told that the person standing opposite holding a sword yeah. was untimely ripped from his mother's womb. Yeah, that, that thing of, you know, no man born of woman will defeat me. Yeah. And there he is standing right in front of you. Like... Fantastic. And then he loses all his strength. Yeah. Because it's in his head. Everything else has come true. This will so come true too. This will come true to Burnham mm. Wood walking towards you. He's like, what? Yeah. It's just brilliant. Brilliant. I mean, Shakespeare for me now, what, the greatest gift I've ever been given is being able to be in a Shakespeare play and given that. I've done many now. And I never thought that was for someone like me. After the education where I was from, all those things. I don't do those things. And meeting Jimmy, Salford Lad, telling me about Albert Finney, Salford Lad. Mm. You know, meeting actors I thought were... I mean, I interviewed Charles Dance the other day. And, you know, I think, oh, Charles, he's definitely public school. Is he heck? Yeah. You know, it's like that thing of discovery of people. And that it's, it's his for me. It's his for us. That is a revelation. Mm. And it's a revelation. It's been the greatest gift. Fantastic. David, it's been fantastic to talk to you. I'm very disappointed you haven't brought flowers on and sung songs. But yes, then I realise well, that's the other Morris, isn't that it? That was the other Morris oh, thing. Oh, damn, what an idiot. Sorry, that's why they're all here. I've been, I've been what? He looked different in men behaving badly. That's what they're all thinking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so all I have to do is say thank you very much. We can close your time, Captain. Thank you. And it's been an absolute joy. Ladies and gentlemen, David thank Morris. You very much. Do I walk off now? You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, David Morrissey. 
thank you to the organisers of the Ink Festival for inviting us to record in their excellent theatre and to David for giving us his time. I'll admit my timekeeping wasn't the best, but I completely lost track of time listening to David. In fact, I hope the time flew for you too and that you are tempted, if you haven't done before, to listen to the many other episodes available. And there are about 300 of them, all different depending on the guest, but all fascinating, I hope. If you subscribe, we'll send you all the new episodes as they're released. Well, I say released, some are only on parole, obviously. Please do rate or even review this podcast to encourage others to choose to listen. It really helps, so thanks for taking the time. And speaking of time, if you're pushed for it, then you can save yourself a little bit of time by signing up to Acast Plus for a very small monthly fee where you will get my time capsule without ads and or sponsorship messages. If you choose that option, all money generated goes back into making more of these. So thanks for your support. My Time Capsule and I are both separately on social media, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, and we love chatting on there and hearing what you think of each episode, so do follow us and get in touch. The theme tune written by Pass the Peas Music is available to download or stream on Spotify, and this was a cast-off production for Acast, skillfully produced by John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'll be back with a normal episode of My Time Capsule very soon, if there is such a thing. So, until then... When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high And don't be afraid of the dark At the end of a storm, there's a golden sky And the sweet silver song of a lark Walk on through the wind Walk on through the rain Though your dreams be tossed and blown Walk on, walk on With hope in your heart And you'll never walk alone You'll Alone Unless you're a Man United supporter living in Tunbridge Wells. Bye. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.